Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Andrea Askowitz. I'm Allison Langer, and this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. But mostly it's <laughs> big sister Allison bossing me around and always getting her way. Maybe. Just ask our listeners. That's what they that's how they hear it. Ah! Together, <laughs> we produce this podcast, Equal Parts Heart and Art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. And by art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the shit and work out our truth. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Before we get to the episode, I want to ask a favor. If you love this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcast. Then share us with your friends. We love expanding our community. And the only way to make that happen is if you tell your friends. Wait, I want to tell everybody that we were recognized as one of the seven best podcasts in Miami. And here's the craziest thing. There are two million podcasts in the world. And Culture Crusaders named us one of the top seven podcasts in Miami. Boom! Today on our show, we're talking about how to frame a story. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. How to frame a story for to get published. We're having yeah. personal issues with this. Because framing a story, like we love our ways of framing a story, and then we send them off to publications, but then it's not a fit. So it's very, very difficult sometimes to fit your square story into all the different shaped holes. It's so much fun when you get somebody to say, yes, we want to publish your story. It's like, yes, I did it. Because you can have the best story in the world, but if it doesn't fit somebody's structure or their frame, it's not getting published. So they're not all looking for the same things. So does that mean we should stick with the same person over and over? Or do you challenge yourself and keep trying to fit into another publication? I mean, what, what what's your suggestion? I love that question because um, I used to want to publish in like every publication and I feel like that was a not wise strategy. So early in my career, I got a few stories published in Salon. And I think that if I were smarter, <laughs> I would have just kept publishing my stories in Salon because, Sal- I mean, I got three stories published in there. So that's pretty good. I had an editor who loved my style. We worked really well together. Sarah Hapola, she's no longer there, but she was awesome. And I should have just stuck with it. But instead, I got like, ooh, I want to spread my stuff all around. Well, you get caught up in the byline. When people ask you your bio, you don't want to just be like, Andrea Asquith's published in Salon. You have to have like a couple of them. But what if I had 10 or 20 in Salon? I mean, that's a that's a really good career move. But instead, I didn't do that. But I actually think if I were going to give advice to a listener out there now, If you find an editor that you work well with, stick with that editor and keep sending that editor stories because that publication and your style work together. But I have good news. So this week I actually got three rejections within like five or 10 minutes, which is like the most amazing thing because we've talked about it. Like people are getting so many submissions that they usually just get ghosted and it's frustrating because you're like, did they get it? Did they not get it? Do I respond? Do I touch base? Like, 
how do I deal with this? And yeah, I mean, I got, I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was like, I was thanking them for rejecting my ass. Right. And you have a really good connection with a a reporter, I mean, an editor at the Washington Post. So, and you have gone back to that same editor. I know, I know. This story that I'm trying to get published doesn't work for them. I've learned a lot and whether or not it gets published or not, I've learned, (laughs) I've, you learn by failure, right? Yeah, you learn by both. Yeah. So I want to mention that Susan Shapiro has a really great class where you meet editors and you learn how to pitch to editors. And I also recently took a class with Amber Petty, who is has a similar strategy to Sue Shapiro. And both of them, I recommend. Classes with both of them, I recommend. And I also recommend reading, reading, reading publications that you like to totally get a feel for that publication and then pitch that editor. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting about what happened with the story that we are about to air is when both of us read it, you and I read it, uh, we both loved it, but we also wanted more of this narrator's sobriety journey. But we also loved the story for the way it worked and it came out in The Independent, which has a very different style. It wasn't about the narrator's sobriety journey. We're looking for a change in the narrator or a discovery. We want the narrator to reveal something big, be vulnerable. And she did that, but this is what she didn't do. After the break, you'll hear Sari Kane read her story, I Was the Real Life Queen's Gambit, Beth. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. We're back. This is Writing Class Radio, and I'm Allison Langer. Sarah Kane is a native New Yorker who has been living the life of a nomad since the start of the pandemic. Her story was originally published in The Independent and is an excerpt from her memoir in progress, Checkmate. Here's Sarah reading her story. Famous at 12, a drug addict at 13. I was the real-life Queen's Gambit back. Here's what they got wrong. After the Queen's Gambit won 11 Emmy Awards, including Best Limited Series, my phone blew up. Everyone wanted to know if I'd seen the show. It was only a matter of time before they did, so friends' reactions didn't surprise me. I was glad the world could finally fall in love with a game whose 64 black and white squares had been my home for the past 34 years, but I couldn't watch it. You see... I was the nonfiction version of the hero Beth, right down to the red hair, only mine was curly. When I turned 12, after seven years playing in scholastic tournaments, I was exhausted. At 13, my career teaching chess took off, as did my addiction to hard drugs. 
I never planned on being a chess teacher my whole life, but every time I quit, it came right back. That's probably why I felt safe pushing it away. At four, I'd fallen in love with a chessboard. My bewildered parents got a red and black cardboard set. My dad and I began to learn. None of us could have imagined where those early sessions would lead me. While Beth graduated high school, received a Beluva watch from her mother, and jetted off to Mexico City, I'd had one abortion, two rapes, and a miscarriage at 14 in the lobby bathroom of my Brooklyn school. I was running 40 chess classes a week and about to take a night job as a stripper. I fended off advances from the fathers of students, players, and instructors by day. At night, gentlemen refused to believe a girl could even play. Feeling like a fraud, I'd step out of early morning classes to puke whatever alcohol I'd been drinked the night before into the children's toilets. I was not yet 20. My gender never went unremarked when I played the game. I learned to use chess as a litmus for potential romance. If the man swiped the board to the floor when I said checkmate, which happened often, he would not be my real mate. My body parts were always up for conversational grabs. I fended off verbal and physical advances without thinking. It was admission price for my seat at the table. Dress like a girl, a lone female teacher advised before I went to tournaments. They'll underestimate you. Still today, when I tell men I teach chess, they most often reply, so do you play it? Others attempt to correct me, suggesting I mean checkers. Unlike Beth, my tournament garb was flannel button-down shirts, sweatpants, and thick plastic glasses. It was the early 90s. Being a boy with the boys and a girl with the girls was the system I knew. World champion Gary Kasparov and America's favorite teacher, Bruce Pandolfini, who I taught with as a teen, made sure the chess in Queen's Gambit was accurate. The portrayal of being a woman in a man's world was not. I quit because chess demanded all of me and I gave it all of me. I turned to hard drugs, sex, and alcohol in order to cope with the huge amounts of pressure on my 12-year-old shoulders. Unlike Beth, I wasn't propelled into tournament chess by my addiction to drugs. I was derailed. I couldn't quit speed chess. I played in chess stores, streets, decadent or putrid apartments. Chess was the one constant in my life and I couldn't let it go. But eventually, even it began to crack. My students started to correct my teaching. The board blurred. I found myself getting sober at 37. COVID was the first time since I was 13 that I wasn't racing around burrows juggling boards. Chess once again brought the world to me, only this time online. Clients and classes from everywhere showed up on my screen. It finally occurred to me to be grateful. It was time to watch the show. I couldn't watch straight through, much to my chess master boyfriend's annoyance. Seeing Beth abuse alcohol and drugs was the closest I'd gotten to such substances since the start of my own sobriety 13 months earlier. As we watched, my partner and I noted how the people playing on screen moved unrealistically fast in a made-for-TV way and enjoyed Beth's description of why she liked chess, how the 64 black and white squares were a world in miniature within her control. When Beth headed towards the bar the night before her big match with the Russian champion, my boyfriend paused the episode. I asked him what he was doing. He replied, giving her a chance to change her mind. I waited in silence until he felt it was time to start the show again. She still went ahead and ordered that drink. 
I did too, every time. These days, however, I am learning to live soberly in the entire world, not just the 64 squares. I think this is fascinating. I mean, basically, this narrator had the story that was like in the zeitgeist of the world at that moment. The Emmys had just come out. Queen's Gambit won all these awards. But then here's this woman who like really, for real, had this experience. And I mean, so she just busted out this story and got it published in The Independent. I feel like it's such an interesting story, just an interesting situation. Did you watch The Queen's Gambit? I actually watched some of it. Truth is, I got a little bored. Oh, my God. I loved it. Oh, you did? I loved it. I I don't know. I just felt like I knew it was coming. But Well, I feel like, don't you do that with all the TV shows or all the movies you watch? It's like after telling stories and writing stories, it's like my kids are always like, Mom, don't say it. I'm like, I could write this shit. That's what I say on everything because I call it and then they're stop ruining it for us. Yeah, stop ruining stories. Because it's rare that I'm really surprised, you know, with what's going on. And But the thing is about storytelling is, and every time I'm trying to surprise, make a do a surprise ending, you're like, no, you need to lead in. You need a hint at the top. Why didn't you hint? You know, so the structure of a story is that you drop hints along the way. We're contradicting ourselves and what we're even saying. That is a very good point. It shouldn't really matter if you know the ending of a story. And I always go back to um, In Cold Blood, which is one of my favorite books ever. Oh, my God. Love that And we know who were the murderers. Like, we know Mm -hmm. everything at the very beginning of the book. And it's still riveting because it's a psychological story. Exactly. And and wait, so that's what I want to talk about now about, about Sari Kane's story. The psychological journey is what she left out for our publication purposes, for writing class radio's publication purposes. Like the journey to recovery is what I really wanted more of. But I am still completely satisfied with this story, which is just really like about taking us into her world and showing us the TV series got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. Well, okay. And I want to address this because this happens all the time in first draft. Um, the class that I teach there on Tuesdays, and I don't mean to plug my my class, but I'm going to because what happens is is we give a prompt and somebody writes a story similar to this. It could be three different stories if you wanted it to. Like this is the one story, the story of like the Queen's Gambit and her relationship to that movie, essentially. But then there's this like abortion, rapes, you know, all that kind of stuff that isn't addressed and the the sobriety and the the, the drinking and all that stuff. Those are different stories. And I'm wondering, why is this girl... You mean Sari. Why is Sari Kane just getting out of college or whatever, graduating from high school, whenever that was? Now, yeah, she says, when Beth graduated from high school and received all that stuff, I had one abortion, two rapes, and a miscarriage at 14 in the lobby bathroom. With the, and, and then I was running 40 chess classes a week and about to take a night job as a stripper. I'm thinking... Why does this girl need so much money? Where's her family? What's going on in her life? Like, I had all those questions. And if that was my first draft class and this was a prompt, I would be asking those. And so I would be steering the story there. I asked Sari, we talked on the phone, 
And I asked her why she didn't write about her sobriety. So you and I, Allison, we were thinking maybe her sobriety is like so recent that she didn't want to go there. But she told me, no, that wasn't it, that she had actually written the story of her sobriety, like this whole story, including the story of her sobriety. Uh, I think she told me like 8,000 words. And then right after the Emmys came out and Queen's Gambit won, she was like, okay, I have a story that will fit into the independent. And she was very deliberate in what she chose and what she didn't choose. And she had to whittle that 8,000 word story down to 800 words. And so she just couldn't tell the entire story. And what she knows is that Holly Baxter at the independent really likes stories that touch on what's going on in the world right now. And she had the real life backstory of the main character of the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Holly wasn't interested in her memoir. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point you're making. But it is interesting to me that we thought she was just like leaving something out for some reason and we wanted to fix it. Let's put that in quotes. We just wanted it to fit our style. Yeah. But I still love it. I see the beauty of a story. And also like it's 800 words. It's so short. It's so tight. It tells us so much about what she was like, what this world was like. I think she did an amazing job of whittling it down. That is not easy in trying to figure out what's important. And probably she knows, like, there's so much to the sobriety and, you know, so much around her abortion and rapes and miscarriages and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those are huge stories. And I'm sure in her book, in her memoir, she will go into depth. But that's not what The Independent wanted. And she can also write other stories for other publications around all of the issues that she brought up that she touched on. She told me that there are two issues in her life that she'll never mention, but they're not these. Like she will talk about her abortion. She will talk about her drug addiction. She'll talk about getting raped. She'll talk about all of that. And she does. The other thing I wanted to tell our listener is that she didn't just bust this out the night after the Emmys happened. She worked on this story for a year. So she had written it a year ago, worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. So she already had the general story and she was just ready. She got lucky kind of because the Queen's Gambit won the Emmys. You know, as I was listening to it again right now, it made me realize like, it feels like chess is her drug. Yes! Because she says she knows she can quit. She can go back to it. She's, you know... um, And then just like the litmus test for potential romance. Like, oh my God, I was so scared when she said if the man swiped the board to the floor when she said checkmate, that she would actually take him. But she said, no, then she would, he would not be her real mate. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because, you know, that weird addictive personality, is she addicted to bad guys, you know, but she's not. So I was at least not in here. Doesn't say that. I was like, oh my God, this poor woman, you know? And I I didn't feel sorry for her. She felt like like she was empowered and she had taken control. And I was, I felt good at the end. And also we do see a change in her. She is sober now. Yeah. And she did quit chess tournament play. And she, she told me, because I was like, what is speed chess? And I would have wanted to know more. And she does describe what it is, but I didn't realize it was a different. So speed chess is like with a timer and it goes really fast and, all these drunks play it and it's a totally drunk game, she told me. So it's very different than tournament chess. It's not proper chess. 
but she's she couldn't quit that. But the Queen's Gambit was about speed chess. They did use a timer. I don't know anything about chess, but she told me that speed chess was really fast. And mm. it's like, it's what you play in the park. It's what you oh, play wow. in, you know, putrid apartments. Oh, God. But it's not fancy tournament chess. Damn. I mean, it's really cool because I loved, loved the Queen's Gambit. I was not bored at all. I learned so much about chess. I really was like super impressed with the way it was put together and 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 all that. So I was excited to get this story. It was great. I was too. Takes us into a world. It's really, really fascinating. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Sari Kane, for sharing your story. The story was originally published in The Independent. For more about Sari, please visit Sari Kane, S-A-R-I-C-A-I-N-E.com. This episode of Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, me, Andrea Askowitz, Matt Kundle, Evan Sorminski, and Courtney Fox at the Sound Off Media Company. Theme music by Justina Chandler. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place on our three-part video series for just 50 smacks. Click video classes on our website. If you want to be a part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, I, Andrea, will answer all your publishing questions. I might not answer them that well, but I'll try. Doesn't guarantee you're going to get published, but it's better than doing it alone. Right. You'll have someone on your team. For $25 a month, you can join Allison's first draft weekly writers group. You will write to a prompt and share what you wrote. That meets every Tuesday, 12 to 1 Eastern time. Go to patreon.com slash writing class radio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? You'll either die or you will be fine. Or die. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a Cash Kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.